All right. You guys doing well? Anybody hungry for more of the Lord? Okay, only half of you. Okay, the other half? The other half, are you hungry too for something? Okay, awesome. Well, hey, I, I've been here. My wife, my, my family is actually back at the hotel. They are resting tonight. We head tomorrow. We head to Harrogate to do another conference, the Leaders event. Really looking forward to being there with leaders from all over Europe. And so the, the, my family wanted to just kind of lay low at the hotel and kind of recover and recoup. Who needs recovery? I don't know. I'm kidding. No. It's, it's an honor to be here. It really is. It's been so fun to know Peter and your pastor, Peter and Kim, for, as Peter said, nine, ten years now. In 2009, they came out to Bethel, spent three months there, and they almost felt like staff members by the end of that three months. And it was so fun. And I remember even hearing then their dream for this building, for this facility. And it's so fun to be here nine, ten years later. And I saw pictures of it and I heard all about it. So it's so fun to be in a, in a space. And I realize many of you are just visiting tonight. But this is such a beautiful building. I, I love the windows. That's amazing. Our, I was telling uh, the conference this week that our, our building is like blacked out. We don't let any daylight in. <laughs> We're like anti-daylight. I, I, I don't know what happened to us, but that is just how we roll apparently. It's probably for filming purposes. And Reading is very hot. Like, it's just hot. Like, we live in a 40-plus Celsius for about three to four months every year. So it's just hot. So, like, man, black out the window. We don't want to see the sun. It's just too hot. And so a lot of air conditioning. Your, your key in Reading to survive is air conditioning and your swimming pool or the lake. Just stay between those three and you'll be golden. But it is an honor to be here in the U.K. I love what the Lord is doing. Uh, we have admired what the Lord has been doing in the U.K. for so many years. And it's so fun to be on the ground with you guys. And I'm excited about preaching about a word tonight that's really always, always been on my heart. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and jump right in. If you want to go to the book of Luke, we're going to start in the book of Luke. We're going to read a few passages of Scripture tonight. And so if you like to follow along, I would highly encourage you. If you like taking notes, take notes as well. But we are going to cover a a bit of scripture. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just getting you ready for that. I want to talk tonight about a topic that is is often talked about in the church. But I do think the Lord is actually, for our purposes, He is is refreshing it. He is not reinventing it, because that wouldn't be accurate. But He's definitely refreshing it. And it has to do with the word discipleship. How many have heard that word at one point in your life? Discipleship. Discipleship is that word. What's funny to me is sometimes as a believer, I've been serving the Lord pretty much my entire life. When I hear discipleship, sometimes I think it's for the people that have never, that have just met Jesus. It's for the people that are just starting out with them. Well, how many understand that discipleship is not at the beginning of your relationship? It is the entirety of your relationship. Are you guys alive tonight? I'm going to need some help here. You're going to have to interact, respond with me. How many understand that discipleship is the entirety of your walk with the Lord? It is not in the first six-month program that you go through and then you're dialed in. It is an ongoing thing with the Lord. But I love to talk about discipleship for so many reasons because we have to ask the question, why in the world did God need disciples? I mean, if you really think about it, what's the whole point? He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to accomplish something, but he chose us. He actually chose to go down this road to find men and women around the world that will become his disciples, to become his followers, to accomplish what's in his heart. He didn't have to. How many know he could do one little motion with his hand and everything taken care of? 
Like, it's not like God said, man, my only option is I got to use a bunch of people. No, he chose it. He actually chose. And I think that's one of the most important things to understand about discipleship is he chose you to be his disciple. Each and every one of you. I love how people say, did I find God or did God find me? I actually don't know. But somehow, I think he finds you, but it makes it feel like you found him. That's just how God is. But he actually chose you to be his disciple. We see that in Scripture. He finds men in that day and says, follow me. And we're actually going to take one of them and we're going to follow him through the course of his life. Not to the end of his life, but toward the moment in his life where everything dramatically changed. Now the other thought is, why would God need disciples? How many know every head needs a body? Every head needs a body. For example, if you did not have a body right now, as soon as I'm done preaching, as soon as we pray for people, as soon as this meeting over, your head could think, man, I need to go outside, get into my car and go home. I tell you what, if you don't have a body, that head ain't moving anywhere. So what's the point? Every head needs the body. Who's the head? Jesus is the head. And who's the body? You and I. The head goes, I want to go left. The body makes sure the head gets to go left. The head says, I want to do this. And the body is the one that carries out the task. It's a beautiful picture. This is why the book of Ephesians and Colossians go hand in hand so perfectly. Because Ephesians talked about the body and Colossians talked about the head. So if you ever want to study true discipleship and what it means to be the body of Jesus, to be the body of Christ, study those two books slowly. Read them slowly and you'll get a beautiful articulation, elaboration of what the head is and who the body is. And when you put those two books together, you get a really good picture of what's actually possible and what was designed and intended in the first place. So I want to challenge you. He needs the body and that's you and I. So being discipled, I shared a couple of days ago, for some of you who've heard this, but people say, how do you know you're actually following Jesus? Because discipleship actually means to follow Jesus. And I know this might sound so elementary, but to follow Jesus means to actually follow him. We live in a day and age where all you have to do is like someone or push a button, and that means you're following them. How many understand that is not what following looks like? <laughs> you can tell when you're following Jesus is when you're not just liking a photo, you're actually in the photos. A lot of us are, man, I love you to the Instagram post. I just hit like. I leave comment. No, no, no. If you're not in the photos, you're not following him. How do you know if you're following Jesus? I tell people, if he's standing in front of you, okay, that's good. Is he looking the other direction? Mm -hmm. Is he moving in another direction? Yes. Okay, that means you better follow him. If you can't see Jesus in front of you, then guess what? He's most likely behind you. And that means you're leading him. How many know that doesn't work out too well? Jesus doesn't follow many. Are you guys alive with me? I know this is elementary. I know this is principle. But you'll be amazed at how many people are just liking Jesus from a distance but not actually following him. He's not an accessory. He's not a filter on an app. Man, I like that filter. I'm going to use that one for this photo. That ain't how Jesus works. Jesus is actually in front. He's moving in a direction. Jesus was so much into moving. In fact, in the book of Mark, there's one story about a blind man getting healed. And there's these three words. Jesus stopped. Have you ever wondered why Mark decided to put that down? Why in the world would you write in the story, Jesus stopped? Because he didn't stop very often. He was constantly moving places. In fact, he would walk by sick people all day long. 
And the one that he tended or intent, most likely stopped for were the one that said, Jesus, son of mercy, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus would stop. He was constantly passing by. So the idea of Jesus being in one place, one location, isn't real. It's rare. So much so that Mark's like, hey, guys, Jesus stopped walking. Look at him. And he writes in the book, Jesus stopped. I don't want to make a point too big of a point, but I do want to emphasize this with you. To follow Jesus means to actually go follow Him. It means to actually leave your life and go join His life. Have you noticed when He went in Matthew in the tax office, He said, Matthew, follow me. He didn't join Matthew's life. He didn't start working for Matthew. He actually left Matthew's office, and Matthew had a moment to decide, uh, I guess I'm done with this job, and he began to follow Jesus. So there is something true about the fact that you actually need to leave your life to follow him. Can I get an amen? Okay. Luke chapter 5. Let's start there. We're going to jump into a story. We're specifically going to focus on a man named Peter. How many Peters do we have in this room? We actually literally have Peter in this room. How many know they're Peter in your life? They're just a lot like Peter. They love the microphone. They love to speak up. Everybody's looking at Pastor Peter, yep. That's why you were given that name. But what I want you to do, sometimes whenever we study Peter, some of us think, oh, that's someone else, that's not me. I think you'll actually learn that a lot of people are more like Peter than we want to admit. And so we're actually going to read at the beginning of Peter's following Jesus, at the beginning of his discipleship. So we're going to read Luke 5, and then we're going to go somewhere else. So let's look in verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Pause right there. The lake of Gennesaret was also the Sea of Galilee. And it was about 13 miles wide, a couple, 13 miles long, a couple miles wide. And I think the deepest part of the lake was like just over 100 feet. So it was a decent body of water. It wasn't obviously the Atlantic Ocean, but it was a decent size of body of water. Verse 2, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. I'm sure most of you are aware of this, but when fishermen are washing their nets, what does that mean? They're done for the day. They're cleaning up, they're getting ready to go home, and so on and so forth. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. How many have ever been fishing and you caught nothing? It's like the worst experience of being a human being is to work so hard and accomplish nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Let's stop right here. We're going to read the rest of the story in just a moment. So the context, what's the setting? The setting is Jesus had the multitude pressing about him. He's approaching the Sea of Galilee. So much so, and if you can imagine, why did Jesus need a boat to stand on? Because the crowds were pressing up against him, most likely into the water. And he, that's not a good issue, that's not a good problem to have. And so Jesus looked over and he sees two couple boats that are empty, and the fishermen are actually washing their nets. Now, I want to point out something here. I love what Jesus does. How many understand that Jesus is not accidental? He's very intentional. 
I think he has strategy, he had ideas, and he was very strategic in what he said, how he said it, when he said it, and what he did. This is how Jesus rolled. And so over he looks at how many understand he knows he's about to call these men to be his disciples. This wasn't like, oh, wow, look at those guys. I'm going to call them disciples. I want to propose to you he was strategically setting the stage to get ready to ask these men to follow him. That's my, that's my belief and that's my opinion on the setting of this moment. So Jesus looked over and he sees these guys that have been fishing all night. He can tell they've been fishing all night because you wash your net. When you're done washing your net in the morning, that means you must have been out all night, which was commonplace to fish at night. Now, they caught nothing, so you could tell there was no joy in their faces. There's no fruit of the labor. It was definitely a grim situation. And I love how Jesus said, Simon, can I borrow your boat? And Simon said, sure. So Simon took a selfie with Jesus just to capture the moment. And he put it on Instagram and said, thank you so much for that. And then he got the boat set up and put Jesus in it and pushed out from shore. So now the boat is away from the people. And now Jesus has an advantage, an advantageous stand, place to stand to look at the crowd and preach the message. Now, we know that Jesus is about to ask the disciples to follow him, but he doesn't do it in that moment. Why? Because he wants them to finish what they were trying to do, and that's to wash their net. Now, we know from the story, from most of us, he eventually tells them, hey, launch you, go out in the deep and go fishing again. And so he's waiting for that moment, but I always ask the question, why wouldn't Jesus say, hey, guys, before you clean up, Go back out and catch some fish. No, he waits until they totally clean up. How many have noticed that God is not very efficient in your life? (laughs) Can we be really honest about this? God is not the most efficient person in our life. Like, God, you should have told me that when I was over there. It would have been so much easier in that season of my life. I was so ready for that. But no, you wait till I'm completely exhausted and done with washing the net, and now you want me to go fishing? I mean, an hour ago would have been helpful, but now you've waited. God is not the most efficient. He is wanting you to get to the end of your option before he jumped into the conversation. He's actually wanting you to get to the end of your road, the end of your process, and then he goes, hey, let's try it again. And you're like, "Uh, you should have did that back here. And I wonder how many people actually say no to God in that moment because we thought, why would I do it now? He should have asked me then. And I think some of us are in a spot in life right now that we've missed an opportunity. I don't want any shame or guilt to take place tonight, but I do want to put a little bit of a pressure on the reality that God sometimes waits until you've washed your nets. He's waiting until you've closed all your tackle boxes, put your fishing rods away, and you've loaded up your truck to go home. And as you're about to drive away, he says, hey, guys, why don't you get back in your boat, go back out into the deep, and cast your nets one more time. And what is phenomenal to me, they're not even disciples yet, but they call him master. Peter actually says, master, we've been fishing all night. It's kind of like saying, God, really bad timing. This is actually not what I want to do. But the reason why the word master is crucial in this moment is because they recognize who Jesus was. The word master actually means teacher, rabbi in that day. So they already had some level of understanding of who this man was. They already respected him as the Messiah. What I think is crucial to discipleship, that you actually have some context of who you're saying yes to. So in that very moment, they said, Master, we fished all night. But nevertheless, at your word, 
we will fish again. So they load up their boat and they head back out. And as they're out there, we know the story. They cast the net on the side of the boat and they pull in such a haul. So let's read these stories. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. How many love it when God tells you to do something and it works? (laughs) Now you can tell when it's abundant is when your own capacity can't handle it. This is an important teaching on abundance as well. You can always tell when it's too abundant and when your own nets are breaking. People say, oh, God would never, never do too much. That is so not true. He would never go beyond my capacity. He would never ask me to do something that I couldn't handle. Well, this, this, this is proof that he goes beyond your capacity. So I want to challenge you, true abundance of heaven is when your capacity cannot handle it. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boat so that they began to sink. You know what crazy abundance is? When everybody in your life is sinking. Are you guys alive tonight? When, you, when everybody in your life is sinking, when the abundant isn't just breaking your capacity, it is breaking their capacity. That's what's happening in this moment. In verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is an amazing verse to me. This verse shows me the tenderness of Peter. This verse shows me the quickness to repent in Peter. Peter, because of a fish, repented. One of the things I've noticed about discipleship is that if you are slow to repent, you need to make an adjustment. And Peter demonstrates the quickness to repent because of a fish. And yet, oh, sometimes we spend our lives justifying our actions. Ah, I don't know. I didn't do anything wrong. And, and we justify our way out of repentance. And here we see Peter. He says, no, no, no. You were right. I was wrong. I repent. And in doing that, he actually begins to step into something that God had planned for him. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. This is kind of a fun part, too, because now he doesn't completely change their careers. He changes their careers, but he takes the same skill set that they had and just catching something differently. Sometimes we're trying to switch our careers, and all God wants to do is just make one degree of change. Oh, you were trying to catch this? I want you to catch this. And so that's what he does here. But look in verse 11. So when they have brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. This is the most important part of discipleship, is that you forsake all. Discipleship cannot happen until you forsake all. So here in this moment, Peter and these other, James and John, they become the disciples of Jesus. Now I want you to go with me to Luke chapter, uh, sorry, John chapter 6. And then we'll go back to Luke. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, 
So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These he said, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, we have the advantage of understanding what Jesus was talking about, but let's be really honest here. That is a very weird message. This is not, this is not very Christian-like. To stand up in front of a multitude and say, you know what, if you really want to follow me, you need to drink my blood. And if you feed on my body, it will bring you life. That is one of the most offensive messages in all of Christianity right here. I think Jesus got up that day and he thought, you know what, there's a lot of people following me. I'm going to test their heart this morning. And so he preached the most offensive teaching in all of the Bible. And he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now look what happened in verse 60. Therefore, many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Yeah, how many would say it's a hard saying? Who can understand such a thing? We have the, we have the benefit of understanding communion. They had no context for this message. And look what happened. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Jesus did not, never have the problem offending you. He never had the problem of... Have you ever noticed that when Jesus went up the mountain, he only took three of the disciples? He didn't take all 12? How many think the other nine are like, what's up with this? We've sold everything too, and how come we're not going up on the mountain? You see, Jesus is not so cautious that he's afraid you're going to get offended. He actually uses it in a way to test your heart. And sometimes we get all fired up and we get all jacked up because we're offended at something. Guess what? It is an expression of His grace to offend you. He's actually trying to bring you out of something and bring you into something. And in this moment, He's like, hey guys, does this message offend you? And Peter said something and said, yeah. Of course, because Peter likes to say things first. So here's Peter. He speaks up and says, yeah. And he asked him, he said, are you guys going to go? Because by that time, everyone had left. And he asked his disciples, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter speaks up and says, I have nowhere to go. Why? Because in Luke 5.11, he forsook all. If you don't know this yet, I'm going to give you a big key of discipleship. He's going to spend the rest, he's going to spend a big chunk of your life getting rid of all your options. So he is the only option. Are you alive, church, tonight? I don't know if I believe you. I'm getting. I'm going to come out here and talk to you. <laughs> Jesus will do whatever he can to reduce all your options down to he's the only one. And then when he does that, then he takes you to the impossibility. Why does he do that? Because when you have multiple options, you'll always choose the easiest one when the rough gets going, when the pressure comes on. And in this moment, Jesus knew if they don't forsake all, they would have left in this moment of this message. He knew that, so he had to make sure they would forsake all. And Peter replied to Jesus, don't you remember Luke 5.11? I forsook all. I have nowhere to go. And so he tell Jesus, you are my only option. And in that moment he says, but every time you talk, there's life. This is a huge component of discipleship, is that you learn to forsake all. And I understand there's people in this room, you've been following Jesus your entire life. But tonight, I want to ask you to make a deeper commitment to him because he wants to take you places that he can only take you. The crazy thing about leadership is this. A leader can take people where they think they can go. 
a good leader can take you where you didn't know was possible. And that's what discipleship is designed to do, to actually take you places that you did not know existed. This is how he could take 12 uneducated men, and they became known as the men that turned the world, turned the world upside down. Now go back with me to uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I forgot to read a passage before we read this one. So let me reference back to that, then we'll come to this. So after Peter forsakes all, we fast forward to the most offensive teaching in the world. And Peter makes it clear, I forsake all. And then as we get close in the previous chapter, we have this moment where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Imagine being Peter. Imagine being told in front of the other guys that you're going to deny, deny, deny Jesus. And Peter, of course, says, there's no way I'm denying you. The other guys might, but I won't. And then we know how the story unfolds, that Peter ended up denying Jesus three times. And what's crazy, he actually, Jesus and him made eye contact in the middle of the denial. Imagine the shame. Imagine the weight of the world. Imagine the, the I cannot believe I just did that. Imagine this moment. You've got this guy that has sold out, sold everything, forsook all, and has been following Jesus. And in one moment, in one evening, he denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And if Peter, if I would, if I think I'm a good guess at this, but Peter would consider himself close to Jesus. Imagine that, that you were not there when your friend was going through death. Imagine that, that you were not there to be able to support your, your friend in the middle of a trial that would ultimately lead to the crucifixion. Imagine what that would have felt like. I cannot believe I betrayed my friend. And imagine Jesus on the other end. Jesus had been betrayed by his own men. Imagine the intensity of this situation. And so imagine now that Jesus died. And imagine Peter the next morning, or probably the worst morning of his life. I denied Jesus last night, and now he's dead. What happened to me? So this whole discipleship thing is blown to the smithereens. And Peter's in this moment, and here we have a couple women ran to the tomb to see if Jesus was still alive. This is three days later. And they run to the tomb, and I'm so glad that the women ran to the tomb. Because if the women didn't run, men were not going to do it. Men just don't want to do these kinds of things. But I'm so glad for the women. They were the first ones to see Jesus. And they come back, and they tell the disciples, and all of them did not believe them. But Peter was kind of marveling at the possibility of like, maybe he is alive. Why do you think it was a big deal to Peter if Jesus was alive? How many would say that Peter wanted to make things right with Jesus? I mean, talk about ending on a bad note. He's like, man, if I have a chance of redemption, I would love that. So Peter's like, if Jesus is alive, I want to make things right. And I hope, I hope Jesus, I hope everything's okay between me and Jesus. And that's the situation we're dealing with here. 
And so we go down to verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. I think in the back of Peter's mind, he's like, there's the chance I can be redeemed. There's the chance I can apologize and clean up my big old mess. There's the chance. Now let's go to um, John chapter 21. As you can tell, I'm going back and forth between two books, but we're following a, a chronological order for the story. John, uh, John chapter 21. By the time John chapter 21 comes, Jesus had appeared to the disciples two or three times. I think, it was, I think this was the third time, but he appeared to them twice by now. And so there was still no restoration. Jesus and Peter hadn't had a moment of, of apologies and forgiveness. There was still this thing going on. I don't know how many days went by, but I was supposed to, obviously, three days of the resurrection and potentially up to about a week is what scholars would tell us. And so imagine how long that week was for Peter. Like, man, can I get an appointment with Jesus tomorrow, please? I really want to clean up my mess. This is the the emotion in Peter. In John chapter 21, let's read this, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So here we have half of the disciples are together. And look at verse 3. Simon said, I'm going fishing. I find that very interesting. That Simon actually goes back to his old career. He actually goes to back what he was comfortable with. He goes backwards, if I can propose that. This is what we do when we're in places of defeat. This is what we do when we've screwed up so bad, we don't know how to get back on our feet. We just kind of go backwards. And I want to propose to you, Peter had nothing else to do. He's like, I I don't know what to do anymore. So what did he do? He takes the step off the stage of following Jesus and goes back to his older life. How many of us in our own life, when we've made a mistake, what do we do? We just kind of go back to the way we used to do things. We've all done it. I'm one of them myself. We like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go back to the old way of doing things. So here we have Peter going fishing. And look at the rest of the verse. They said to him, we're going with you also. Talk about a depressed pity party. Everybody's like, yeah, I guess we go back to our old life. I mean, I guess this three years with Jesus was only a, a three-year process. So all of them now are depressed, they're sad, and they're having a pity party. Let's go fishing. So they go fishing. They went out immediately, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Have you noticed they can't catch fish? (laughs) What kind of fishermen can't catch fish? I can't believe they even held a job for this long. They go out and they catch nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that was Jesus. Think about that for a second. These guys had been with Jesus for three solid years. And Jesus is talking to them, and they don't even know it's him. How is that even possible? This happened another time in Luke chapter 24, where after the death, after the death of Jesus, the disciples are walking outside of Jerusalem, the road to Emmaus, and they're walking away from the Jerusalem, and Jesus shows up in the midst of them and starts having a conversation with them. And Jesus goes, hey guys, what's going on? And the disciples do not know it's Jesus. And yet it's Jesus. 
They're like, so what's happening here? And the guy's like, have you not heard? This man named Jesus just died. And they're talking to Jesus. And they spent all day talking with Jesus, walking on the road. They're telling Jesus what happened. And Jesus said, no, let me tell you why this happened. They still don't know it's him. They get to the end of the day, and they're going to their house. And Jesus suggested he was going to keep walking. And the men said, no, no, no. Would you have a meal with us? They spent all day with Jesus. And they don't know it's Jesus. And they're talking about Jesus. And Jesus goes into the house. They sit down. And when they broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they realized who it was. And the moment they recognized it was Jesus, he disappears. And the verse says that, did our hearts not burn within us? What's the point? How come we didn't know it was him? You see, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you are out of your calling, it's hard to see what Jesus is doing. You can actually be in the midst of a move of God and not see Jesus at all. It's actually possible. And as you go back to the nation of Israel, they've seen signs and wonders, and yet they were not able to discern if it was the Lord or not. You can actually be in the middle of a revival and be completely blinded to where Jesus is and what he is doing. So here they are fishing, going back to their old job, their old life, their old way. And Jesus is talking to them from the shore, and they don't recognize it's him. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? I read that with sarcasm. I read that like Jesus said, you guys aren't catching nothing, are you? And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. I'm wondering, at what point did the disciples go, man, this is familiar. We've been here before. Like, we've not caught anything, and some guy is telling us to try something different. At what point do you think they go, is this Jesus? Well, they didn't know it was him yet. But you have to understand that this was a familiar situation. Have you noticed? They never caught fish unless Jesus was with them. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. If they didn't know Jesus when he told them to do it, how many things they started to wonder if it was Jesus in this moment? Man, the last time we couldn't pull all the fish in was three years ago. And that was when Jesus entered our life. So how many things, when they're pulling the fish in, they realize, you know what, guys? I think I know who that is over there. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Imagine that moment. Peter is pulling in the net, and he hears John. How many know this is John that said that? John always said, I was his favorite. The one that Jesus loved the most. John loves himself so much that Jesus loved him so much. So as Peter is pulling in the net, John goes, Peter, it's Jesus. Imagine that moment. He looks up and he locks eyes with the man on the shore. Why is he excited? Because he wants redemption. He wants to be restored back to his place in ministry. He wants to clean up his mess. Imagine the excitement Peter had in this moment. He looked at Jesus and he does something illogical. He put on his outer garment and jumped in the ocean. I don't know about you, but when you go swimming, you don't add clothes, you lose clothes. So why in the world would you add clothes? Because in this moment, nothing's making sense. Are you guys alive? He jumped in fully dressed, fully clothed. And had Peter scrambling to shore, the other guys are rowing in. 
I'm sorry I'm yelling so much. I get excited. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in from the little, with the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. It was so much fish they couldn't get it in the boat. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. I love how there's an exact number. There's an accountant in the room. They're like, hey, let me count this up real quick. 153 fish. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was him. Verse 13. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15 is the moment Peter is waiting for. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Why did he ask Peter this specific question? Because when Peter said he wouldn't deny Jesus. He said, they might, but I won't. Jesus said, okay, do you love me more than these? Imagine this moment that Peter is partially excited, and yet he's about to get pierced through the heart. Simon, do you love me more than these? And Peter replied, you know I love you. And Jesus said a second time, Simon, do you love me more than these? And Peter's like, God, Jesus, you know I love you. The third time, why did he ask him three times? Because he denied Jesus three times. What did Jesus do? He's restoring him. What's fascinating about Jesus is he didn't tell Peter how big of a mess he made. He didn't say, Peter, grab a seat. Let me tell, me, let me tell you how much that hurt me. The other night when you denied me, that was really painful. Like, that would have been a great moment for you to admit that you're with me so I could have a friend, a confidant in the moment of trial. But no, you abandoned me. Jesus didn't do any of that. Which is really cool, by the way, that Jesus was wanting to get to the repentance part and he wasn't too worried about that part. Now, I know there's a time and a place for that in human relationship, but I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus in this moment, like, you know what? Do you actually love me? And the third time, Peter said, God, Jesus, you know I love you, and he loses it. And in that moment is when Jesus restores him back to being the Peter that we knew. You see, Peter had to go full circle to complete his discipleship. He started with fishing. He went back to fishing, and Jesus met him again in that place. I want to challenge you. Some of you in this room, I have a hunch, I have a feeling that you said yes to him, but something's happened along the way. Something's happened along the way where you forsook all. But now you have some options. And Jesus is saying, hey, come follow me again. I understand we have people from all walks of life in here. Some of you met Jesus last week. Some of you have been following me your entire life. But we have to understand, when we say yes to him, it is a continual dying to our ways. It's a continual process of letting go and saying yes to him to follow me. And from this moment on, Peter became the pillar of the early church. He became the pillar of the early church in such a way that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. And we went to Rome this year. I know I don't want to get too weird on you, but it was fascinating how big Peter, big of a deal Peter is in the Vatican. Now, whether you like that or not, is not my point right now. My point is this, that thousands of years later, Peter is revered as one of the greatest men to ever walk in Christian history and obviously human history.
But how many understand that he had to say yes to following Jesus the second time? It was in that moment that Peter became the man that we all love and revere. But I want to challenge you tonight at this place, Eastgate. Will you say yes to him again? Some of you have been fishing for a while, and Jesus said, hey, come have breakfast with me. It will happen next in the story of Jesus makes breakfast with the disciples. And I think some of us are actually, Jesus is standing on the shore saying, hey, come in, I want to have breakfast with you. We need to have a talk. And some of you are like, no, I'm fishing. I'm trying, I'm working hard right now. Can't you tell I'm working really hard? I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus is like, no, 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 come have breakfast with me. And I want to challenge you tonight. Some of you have been fishing. Some of you have walked away from what the Lord has actually called you to. And he's saying, listen, I called you to be over here. Come have breakfast with me. I'm going to restore you back. And I'm going to, I want to do something right now. I want to pray for people in this room that actually feel like you've been fishing and the Lord, want, the Lord has been calling you to come to the shore and have breakfast with him. So I'm going to, everybody's eyes open. I have a feeling there's somebody in this room, maybe more than one, that you actually are in a place like, man, I've been fishing. I've been avoiding following him with everything. If this resonates with you at all in this room, I'd like for you to do something courageous, and that is stand to your feet, and we're going to pray with you. This is the moment of restoration. This is the moment of, of reconciliation. This is the moment of saying, sign me up all over again. If that's you, I want you to stand to your feet. Thanks for standing in the back. That's right. Have the courage to stand up. And just to be clear, did it mean you drop your career that you have? That's not what I'm referring to. It's the heart issue we're talking about tonight. It's a heart issue of I've decided to do what I wanted to do and not say yes to him. But tonight, you're standing tonight because you're saying, I want to go have breakfast with Jesus and I want to be restored back to my rightful place with him so I can follow him and do the things he actually designed me to do for the rest of my life. For those of you that are standing, thanks for standing. Super courageous of you. And I want to pray with you right now. And so for the church around, I want you guys to just extend a hand, put a hand on them, to stand with them, whatever it means. For some of them, this is the big deal. <clears throat> some of you have been fishing too long that you forgot what it was like to follow Jesus. And tonight, that all changes. <clears throat> so Father, tonight we pray for each person that is standing that they would respond to the call of Jesus to have breakfast on the shore. Jesus says, hey, come have breakfast with me. And right now you're saying, I'm coming in. I'm putting my clothes on and I'm jumping in the ocean and I'm swimming to shore. That this is the day that you will stop living the life that you went back to. And you actually say yes to the life that he's called you to. And so right now I pray in this moment, Lord, that you would encounter them that you would encounter their heart. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. I ask that you would mess them up really good right now. And if for some of you that are standing, if there's, if there's something that you need to repent from or repent of, I want you to do that right now. Maybe you're standing there and you realize, man, I, I have intentionally gone over here. If that's you, I want you to repent right now. With your own word, just repent. Because repentance is actually the key. When you repent of something that you've done that you're not supposed to do, it's amazing how much freedom comes after that. And Peter was so quick to respond in Luke 5, and he was so quick to repent 
in the last chapter of the book of John. So just take a moment right now, and on your own words, on your own lips, I want you to repent of anything that you need to repent from. I want you to hear the Lord asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? And do you love me? I want you to hear the Lord asking you those three questions. And I know what your response is, but I want you to just respond to him, say yes, three times. Just as a prophetic act, as a, as a symbolic act of saying yes to following him and forsaking all, all over again. Now I want to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and you would put courage back in the heart. You would put boldness back in the heart. That you put their calling, that their, their mandate in life would come to the forefront of their mind. That when they leave this room tonight, they'd realize that they're back in line with what you have called them to. I pray that there would be such a tenacity rising up within them that they would find themselves a completely different person tomorrow morning. That they'd wake up with a sense of destiny in their life. They'd wake up with a sense of like, I'm not called to fish anymore. I am called to actually change the world. I'm actually called to do impossible things. The Lord has actually designed me to do impossible things. So I pray that right now there will be something that will be imparted into the Spirit, imparted into their life. I pray for the old prophetic words to be reminded. They'd be reminded of what the Lord has called them to. Pray for people in this room that have been fishing for too many years. They'd be reminded that they pick up where they left off. And let them know, Lord, that this isn't the end, but this is only the beginning. This wasn't the end for Peter, and it's therefore not the end for you. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, this is the beginning for you tonight. That you're actually getting, picking up where you left off. So, Father, I pray for them to realize their destiny in their life, the prophetic word, the promises that you have spoken over them. Now, for those of you that are standing with them, just begin to pray over them even more. And if, if you feel like the Lord has something for them, whisper it in their ear or tell them, man, I feel like the Lord says this about you. And I want you to take a moment right now and prophesy destiny. Encourage them. Give them something to eat tonight. Give them something to hold on to tonight. So let's take a few moments for this. The rest of you, just pray for them. Because this is a big moment for these people's lives to leave the fishing boat and to get back on shore and have breakfast with Jesus. So take a moment right now and do that. Put courage in them with your words. Put courage in them. That's what encouragement means. It means to put courage in people. Just take a few more moments of this. Speak destiny over them.